0: From the Mert Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything is at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA 1580. Download the app and listen to us live anywhere in the world but only by downloading our app right now at KBLA 1580 I say it every day if you haven't downloaded it yet you should you don't know what you're missing by not downloading the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app, Or by going to our YouTube channel and let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Twitter at The Real Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today. In our second hour, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, the man who directed the prosecution of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd and ultimately helped to put Chauvin and all the other do-nothing police officers behind bars. Ellison had the presence of mind to keep a personal trial diary, which is now a book, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. The book by uh, Keith Ellison publishes today, and we have Keith Ellison today in our two. In our third hour, is happiness a choice? Is it just a fleeting emotion or is it a skill that can be cultivated and mastered Dr. Rick Hansen is the leading expert in the realm of happiness and well-being, and he joins us in Hour 3 for a conversation on how we can counterbalance our brain's negativity bias and learn to hardwire happiness. I can't wait for Hour 3 today. We all want to be happy, don't we? All right. We commence, though, today's program in dialogue with Dr. William A. Sandy Darity Jr. about whether or not $14 trillion— would suffice to rectify historical injustices and bridge the stubborn and enduring economic disparity gap between black and white Americans. Why $14 trillion, you ask? Glad you ask. Let's talk about it right now with Dr. Darity of Duke University. Uh, Dr. Darity, how are you today, sir? I'm fine, thank you it's good for having me Nah, no man good to have you back on thank you for the time glad we have an hour there's a whole lot to talk about as we say around here we got a lot to talk about uh and we'll uh, make the most of these 60 minutes uh now let me start with this i mentioned 14 trillion dollars i should i should probably get some more backstory so last thursday representative cory bush democrat from missouri uh one of the squad as you know introduced a comprehensive 23 page piece of legislation her proposed bill calls upon Congress to adopt various measures aimed at rectifying historical injustices, including urging the federal government to provide reparations to black folk and implement other forms of uh, reparatory justice. Uh, The resolution argues that a minimum of $14 trillion is required to close this existing racial wealth gap between black and white fellow citizens. There's a lot there. Let me start with this, Professor Darity. Number one, To your mind, how does the the uh, the bill introduced by Cory Bush last week differ from the legislation heretofore that we've been talking about repeatedly? That's been mostly championed by Sheila Jackson Lee out of Houston, Texas.
1: I think that uh, Representative Bush's resolution has more specifics (laughs) about what direction or shape a reparations plan ought to take. and uh, one of the specifics that's mentioned in the bill is this notion that a minimum expenditure for a reparations program should be sufficient to eliminate the racial wealth gap, uh, which, you know, I've estimated in my work uh, would require at least... Uh, an expenditure of 14 trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's different in, in, uh, in her resolution. That's a difference from her resolution than HR 40, which Sheila Jackson Lee has championed. There are also some specifics about eligibility criteria, which I think are problematic in her resolution, but, uh, but that's, that's, that's something we may, may we may want to talk about further, yeah. further along. But, <laughs> Uh, the key thing is that there are actually some indications about what the provision should be in an actual reparations plan in uh, Representative Bush's uh, proposal.
0: I mentioned Sheila Jackson Lee, um, and you uh, put your finger on it more expressly. I was going to get to that. I'm glad you did. H.R. 40 is the bill that we've been talking about for some years now. And uh, you can't mention Sheila Jackson Lee without mentioning John Conyers. Uh, John Conyers first introduced. Uh, this legislation many decades ago, it seems, and upon his retirement and then his passing, of course, um, Sheila Jackson Lee picked up that particular baton, and so she's been the primary person in Congress uh, championing H.R. 40. You hear uh, Professor Darity suggest now that the uh, uh, resolution, the, 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 the bill introduced by Cory Bush, is a little bit different than H. 40, and to my mind, for the very first time, unless I'm missing something here, Professor Darity, you tell me. It's the first time a dollar figure. Uh, I, I, I wanted to have you on because obviously the artist has figured this out. When I asked why $14 trillion, that number came from you. It was the research and the work of Professor Darity at Duke University uh, that came up with that $14 trillion as a minimum. And that's where Corey Bush uh, out of uh, Missouri gets this number. And she puts that number into her legislation introduced again just last Thursday. I say all that to ask whether or not I am right about the fact this is the first time that a dollar figure has been attached to any sort of reparations legislation. That's the way I I mean, I can't think of one prior to. Can you?
1: Any congressional legislation?
0: No, yes. I don't yeah. know
1: of any other example. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I the first think time. this is the first time. Yeah, it's the first yeah. time
0: we've had actually a dollar figure that somebody attached to legislation in the House. Now, why is that important? When we come forward, I'll tell you why it's important. Uh, well, I'll tease you. It's important in part because we're watching what's happened here in California. This station heard across the country, uh, uh, flagship here in Los Angeles. The whole nation is watching California to see what's going to happen on our reparations legislation. The task force has finished its work. The recommendations have gone forward. Gavin Newsom is starting to move real funny. I said this a couple of days ago. He's moving funny these days. It was his idea. He supported the idea of the task force. And now that they are talking real money, he's starting to, you know, it appears he's doing that Michael Jackson moonwalk. So he's starting to move real funny now. The governor is the Democratic governor of this state. Now that this thing is moving forward, we'll see what the legislature does. But you've heard all kind of commentary, all kind of commentary and conversation and critique and criticism already about the dollar figures that we see floating around here in California statewide and say nothing of the five million dollar figure that people have been talking about in the city of San Francisco. Now here comes Corey Bush with aid and support from William Darity suggesting that the real number nationwide is some 14 trillion dollars at a minimum. And there are a lot of questions to be asked about whether or not these dollar figures are going to so frame this conversation that the good white folk in this country ain't trying to hear it. And there's no way, obviously, you can pass legislation without a lot of white folk voting for it. Uh, And so I'm not suggesting on the one hand that we ought to ignore the dollar figure. But I'm saying already that when you see the way this debate is already being framed, it's always being framed around money. Now, you can't get away from that, but how do you advance it if the dollar figure alone turns people off to the conversation oh there's a lot to talk about in this hour our guest is william darity we'll continue when we come forward on kbla talk 1580 sir william a darity jr is our guest in this hour he is the samuel du bois cook professor of public policy african and african American studies and economics and director of the samuel du bois cook center on social equity at duke university he has his hands full but i thank him for this hour today uh, to unpack this latest piece of legislation introduced by Cory Bush, a Democrat out of Missouri, uh, calling uh, for a number of mer- measures uh, to be adopted uh, aimed at rectifying uh, a variety of historical injustices, including urging the federal government to provide reparations to black Americans and implement other forms of. Uh, uh, of of justice reforms. That said, Professor Darity, uh, let me let me go right to the issue, uh, and that is the fourteen trillion dollar number. Um, for starters, how did you calculate that number? Tell me about that part first.
1: So, uh, the most recent data that we have on wealth inequality by race in the United States is from the twenty nineteen Survey of Consumer Finances that's conducted by the Federal Reserve Board. And that survey indicates that the average difference in wealth between black and white households is approximately $840,000. Uh, that corresponds to a per-person difference of approximately $350,000. Uh, if you were to multiply what is due on the basis of that estimate, to 40 million or so black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States, then that puts you in the vicinity of $14 trillion.
0: Mm. Um, Okay, I get the math. Uh, let me now talk. Okay. Let, me, let me not. Thank you. And that, and for me, that 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 that's not an easy accomplishment. I, I was not good at yeah, math. No, 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 <laughs>
1: now you want to talk about the politics.
0: There you go. This, this, this the politics. The, the math I get, as I said, I was the math major. So if I get it, then anybody listening right now gets it. So I get the math. I get the, I get the math equation, the politics. Um, you heard me say a moment ago that I, I am concerned, um, although I don't believe there's any reason to throw in the towel. Uh, Given the progress we've made, when I started doing radio and TV 30 years ago, um, if you said reparations, they'd laugh you out of the room. I mean, you couldn't talk about it on the air. And everywhere you look now, there are mainstream media articles and all kind of coverage now and advancements made and progress being made on this issue of reparations. So clearly we're, we're moving the needle on this. No question about that. The question is whether or not we can get from here to there, wherever there is. And there. As far as you're concerned, starts with a minimum number of 14 trillion dollars. You're watching the debate as much as I am here in California and beyond. And 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 how do you how do you frame? But let me back up. Let me, let me rephrase that. How do we properly frame a conversation about uh, reparative justice that has a dollar figure attached to it that you know scares the bejesus out of people? How do, how do you frame that properly, Professor Darity?
1: So, um, so first of all, I think it's important to distinguish between whether or not the program should be funded by the federal government or by other levels of government. Okay. And I think it's absolutely impossible for states and localities to actually fund a, a comprehensive reparations plan. They just don't have the resources to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's part of the, uh, the problem that folks are going to be confronting in California that what is identified as a uh, a suitable sum of money that's appropriate for the harms and atrocities that took place specifically in California is not something that the state is going to have the capacity to finance so let let me put it this way if if the minimum bill if you accept the premise that the minimum bill is 14 trillion dollars the combined budgets of all state and local governments in the United States comes to less than $5 trillion. So they literally don't have the ability to meet what I would view as the minimum standard for a reparations plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, as a consequence, any uh, state commission or any local or municipal commission is really in a bind in terms of trying to do something that they want to call reparations. And, and frankly, I wish they wouldn't call what they're doing reparations. I wish they'd call it something else, and that they would devote some of their resources to promoting the effort to get Congress to do the right thing. Uh, can the federal government meet a bill of $14 trillion? Absolutely. If we look at the huge amounts of funds that the federal government put together to address the Great Recession and the pandemic virtually mm-hmm. overnight, mm-hmm. it is clear that the federal government can do it. But states and localities cannot.
0: You mentioned uh, the pandemic and the recession. I thought you were about to add to that list, so I will now. Ukraine. We keep writing yes. billion, billion dollar checks to Ukraine. Uh, so clearly, yes. when they want to do something, uh, this is not a this is not a skill problem; it's a will problem. So I take your point right. that they certainly have the capacity uh, to and, do it,
1: and, and and they don't worry about debt
0: ceilings when they want to do something. There you go. <laughs> uh, let, let me let me let me pivot ever so gently since you went there. Speaking of debt ceilings, um, so President Biden and uh, Speaker McCarthy. Uh, describe as of this morning a productive meeting but no agreement is reached since you went there what do you make of the risk that the U.S. uh, is facing right now on defaulting for the first time uh, on the deficit Uh,
1: I think it's it's possible that the United States will default on the on the deficit Uh, well let me let me be careful sure I want to distinguish between the term debt and deficit right Okay. So you would be defaulting on the debt. On the debt,
0: exactly. Yeah, correct.
1: You would not be defaulting on the deficit. And in fact, there is no deficit ceiling that's written into the law. So, if the federal government chose to extend its a level of ex, level of spending without borrowing, then it would not be uh it would not be breaking the terms of the debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you only acquire additional debt when you spend by borrowing. But you could spend without borrowing because the federal government is a sovereign currency issuer. However, the risk that you always take in spending without uh, without having, uh, an immediate, uh, tax support or a deferred tax support is that you could produce inflation. So you have to des- design your program in such a way that you spend without, uh, without having a high risk of, of, of generating, uh, generating, uh,
0: substantial inflation. Yeah. I am not a, um, uh, uh, an award-winning economist, uh, as are you, um, uh. Trained at MIT and now teaching at Duke. I, that's not my. That's not my backstory. That ain't my testimony, as we say. Yeah, but but, so, but
1: some people would say I have crazy ideas, regardless of how I was trained. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm sure
0: some some would. I'm not. I'm not one of them because I want to come right to something you said now that in all of my years of doing what I do, I've never quite considered, but it jumped out at me, and I hope the audience heard the same thing. Uh, so again, I'm not an economist. But I'm I'm a pretty decent talk show host, and when I hear something, I, I know how to go to it. I heard you make a distinction because um, it, 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 I used the wrong uh, phrase, the wrong, word, the, the wrong word initially when I said um, the, the deficit ceiling, and you corrected me quickly. I didn't mean to say that. It, it's the debt ceiling, of course. But then you said something that got my attention. In this country, uh, we do have a debt ceiling. To your brilliant point, though, we do not have a deficit ceiling. And I know there's a reason for that, and there's some politics behind that. So why do we have a debt ceiling but not a deficit ceiling? What, what's 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 the the meaning behind that? I think because people don't make the distinction; uh-huh. they don't really think
1: about the idea that these are really separate things. Right. They they don't assume that the government can actually do any significant amount of spending without it being supported by taxes at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, the government can spend without taxing
0: first. Mm hmm. I've been doing this 30 years and I just now I had just ha- I had an aha moment. I never thought about the fact that we have a debt ceiling, not a deficit ceiling. And that allows the government to move in unique and interesting ways if, when and how they choose to. So now I'm not the only person who knows the distinction between the debt ceiling and the deficit ceiling, which does not exist.
1: The danger here is, of course, that they may now try to introduce a deficit.
0: I get it. Oh, trust me. I I told you. (laughs) I told you. I am not an economist, but I'm a pretty decent talk show host. And and when I hear a distinction, uh, a a, a, a distinction that makes a difference, I know how to go right to it. Uh, And I, I heard that when you teed that up. I'm like, okay, so now I see the politics on this, and it is possible that in the coming years we may change the language or at least expand the lanes to have a debt ceiling and a deficit ceiling i see all kind of politics on that which uh, i ain't got time yeah. to get into right now but I, but i see where you're going i see where you're going uh Uh, All right. Let me leave that alone for a second. We'll come to that at at another time uh, to talk to you or Julianne Malvo, somebody. We'll talk about that a little bit later down the road. But I see the politics on that uh, in in, in bold and big letters. Let me get back now to this notion of reparations. And before I go forward, let me go backwards and ask you uh, what you meant when you said you wish that uh, in California and in other places that are having conversations like California, uh, we would not call it reparations. Unpack that for me.
1: Well, the the danger here is that we will end up with a series of piecemeal projects that are called reparations that will become an obstacle to having a national, comprehensive, true reparations plan, Mm -hmm. because people will say, well, there's no need to do anything at the federal level because all these cities and states have done something. But what my big point is that whatever they do in combination cannot approximate what is the minimum requirement for a true reparations project. And so we would be better off if they were trying to do things at the state and local level that are constructive and that reverse some of the effects of the racism that our people have encountered for so many years, but don't call it reparations. Uh you know sometimes uh Kirsten Mullen, my co author on the book from Here to Equality, and mm-hmm. I'd say, well why don't you just call them racial equity initiatives mm-hmm. uh but it's it's presumptuous to label them as reparations because they're never going to approach uh the level that is really required uh for for comprehensive redress in the United
0: States Nope, I like that uh and I'm sure the audience is uh is 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 honing in on that as I am the difference between calling it reparations and what that really portends uh versus calling it racial equity initiatives uh i take your, your point uh and I, I hear the distinction loud and clear um let me let me come back to this and, I, and i'm asking this question and let me just preface it by saying as i often do i am not naive in asking this question um so people know that i get it um but i'm, I'm wondering why professor darity this is your lane you think that the existing racial wealth gap between black folk and white folk in this country has been so stubborn for so long? Now, the obvious answer is race, and if I you know, if I thought that was the end-all, be-all, I wouldn't ask this question. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You tell me. Why is this racial wealth gap that you uh, defined earlier as part of the equation for how you got to $14 trillion uh, at a minimum, why is this wealth gap, why has it been so stubborn in this country for so long?
1: So the wealth gap has been stubborn in this country because it's been manufactured by government policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, clearly, uh, the government can take steps to reverse it or change conditions. But, uh, you know, the starting point for the contemporary racial wealth gap, uh, from my perspective, really, it really begins in the aftermath of the Civil War, when the uh, newly emancipated folk were promised 40-acre land grants as restitution for their years of bondage, and they got virtually nothing. Uh, in contrast, one and a half million white American families were given 160 acre land grants apiece in the Western territories under the terms of the Homestead Act as the nation completed its colonial settler project. And, um, those, uh, th- that one and a half million white families translates into approximately Ten percent of the United States's white population, as of the year nineteen hundred, so this this is an enormous mm-hmm. transfer of wealth that's taking place. And uh, Trina Shanks Williams at at the University of Michigan now estimates that at least forty five million living white Americans are beneficiaries of the Homestead Act land patent. Hold
0: that. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. We we'll want to get to that. In just a second here, uh, when people don't want to support reparations or racial equity initiatives, they say, well, I didn't benefit from it. You hear you hear Professor Darity saying, "Uh, uh-uh, hold up. Not so fast. Forty five million white folk living right now who benefited from that program. We'll get to that when we come forward with Dr. William A. Darity Jr. on KBLA Talk 15. And we're glad to have you tuned in today. Uh, our guest in this hour, by the way, I'm Tavis Smiley, in case you've just tuned in. Our guest is Dr. William A. Darity Jr. He is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies, and Economics, and director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. We are talking in this hour about a piece of legislation introduced last week by Representative Cory Bush, Democrat of Missouri, one of the squad members, uh, that's calling for. Uh, A a variety of forms of reparative justice. Uh, The resolution argues that a minimum, minimum of 14 trillion dollars is required to close the existing and stubborn racial wealth gap between black and white. Americans, uh, that $14, uh, $14 trillion, not $14, excuse me, $14 trillion, the number so big I can't even say it, the $14 trillion number uh, comes from the work uh, and research of William A. Darity Jr., I guess in this hour, that's where Cori Bush got this number uh, that is now a piece of her legislation, which is different from H.R. 40. Uh, the reparations legislation first introduced many, many years ago by the now uh, deceased John Conyers, that torch is being carried by Sheila Jackson Lee. So this is a different piece of legislation. The first time ever, to my knowledge and to Professor Darity's knowledge, that a number has been placed on a reparations bill. Uh, in the house and again the number is 14 trillion dollars that brings you up to where we are uh, in this conversation in case you've just tuned in that said before news traffic and sports uh, professor darity um you had uh were dropping uh, some other knowledge on us about uh, uh uh an act in this country uh where uh, 45 million uh, living white americans are, are still benefiting from that take me back and explain that to me in the audience please
1: so uh i was referring to the homestead act of 1862 which was a mechanism that the federal government used to distribute land, uh, that was taken from the Native American population and, and turned it over essentially to white Americans, both, uh, folks who were already citizens as well as people who had newly arrived as immigrants. Uh, and, uh, I was pointing out that the land was distributed in 160 acre lots to, 1.5 million white families which would amount to approximately 10 percent of the white population in the year 1900 um, and that this had ramifications to the present moment because of the ways in which people transmit wealth across generations so that there are now uh estimated an estimated 45 million white americans who continue to be beneficiaries of those land patents uh What I wanted to go on and say is that in the 20th century, the federal government moved away from um, asset building via land distribution to asset building by uh, promoting home ownership. And it did that both through the New Deal legislation and the GI Bill that was supposed to provide benefits to returning veterans from World War II. Uh, However, it also did it in such a way that it promoted black wealth. Uh, it promoted white wealth accumulation and did not promote black wealth accumulation. And this is because, uh, under the New Deal, the Federal Housing Administration set up a public-private partnership with local banks that resulted in the use of redlining as a mechanism for denying home ownership credits to black households. And then under the GI Bill, the home ownership subsidy provisions were denied black returning veterans at an extraordinarily high rate and, and given to white returning veterans almost on a 100% basis.
0: I didn't want, I didn't want to interrupt, or interrupt for one second. I wanted you to get that out, and I'm glad you did, because now I want to ask the following, which is how then black folk should hear Um, White fellow citizens when they say that I didn't benefit from anything that my ancestors did, so why should I be stuck paying a bill for reparations or for any racial equity initiative for that matter? How should we hear that retort?
1: Well, we should hear that retort as a mistake,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and and uh, hopefully at, at, at best a consequence of ignorance on the part of the individuals who issue it, because they're not recognizing that there was a host of federal policies that indeed did benefit their ancestors, fairly close ancestors where we start talking about the GI Bill in particular, uh, and that those shaped the economic security and opportunity that they have in the present moment in a way that was denied to black Americans.
0: Now this conversation is getting really fascinating and and, and interesting and, and rich for me because I've, I've come full circle here. We started this conversation with me posing the question of how we frame, how do we frame a conversation about reparations? How do we frame a conversation about racial equity initiatives Uh, to use the phrase of William Darity and his co-author, how do we frame these conversations around something other than money? Because it's abundantly clear to me that if the conversation in San Francisco is only about $5 million per citizen, if the conversation in California is about millions of dollars, whatever, per citizen, if the conversation at the federal level is about $14 trillion at a minimum to close the racial wealth gap in this country, I can guarantee you all of those, at least to my mind, I've been doing this for a few decades, those are non-starters in some ways. Uh, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't press. I'm not suggesting it's not a legitimate claim. What I am suggesting is that it is a non-starter for many people just based on the number. Put a pin in that. What you hear, Professor so Derrick. Qu- the,
1: but, the, but the question is whether or not it's a non-starter for a majority of america
0: that's a good question that's a good question but i got a better okay. I, but i got a better route so I, yeah. i'll debate you on that respectfully i'll debate you on well, whether well, or not
1: well there, there you know i i don't think there's a majority at the present moment right the situation's a lot different in 2023 than it was say
0: in the year 2000 oh no question no question on that there is no debate yeah. you you win that argument yeah. uh i, I can yeah. i concur with you on that but, he, but here's what i'm pressing toward I I think that framing a conversation about, again, reparations or racial equity initiatives around money gets us in trouble. But the argument you just laid out now, rather brilliantly, I might add, is a different argument. The argument I hear you making now is an argument for what I would call fundamental fairness. It's a fundamental fairness argument. And that is an argument I think that will work. That's an argument that we can advance. That's an argument that doesn't begin or end with money. It's a question uh, put to America about whether or not you are going to engage in fundamental fairness when it comes to reparative justice. And given what you've laid out about what they've done in so many other in, in so many other moments in American history and for other communities, that's a very, very difficult question to answer when you press them on fundamental fairness. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. I mean, an- another way to think about it, although I, I'm not sure people will be attracted to this language, But another way to think about it is the federal government has given substantial handouts for wealth-building purposes to white Americans, Mm -hmm. and they have not done so for black Americans. So I don't have any intrinsic opposition or hostility towards handouts. It's just that they weren't fairly distributed.
0: Hmm. Yeah, we're making the same argument. Uh, you call it a handout. Uh, I, I call it fundamental fairness. <laughs>
1: well, people are always talking about us getting handouts. That's so true. that's a you know what what is what is a hundred sixty acre land patent, but a handout. It's not a handout.
0: Right, no, patent. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing. The thing. Uh, as I said earlier, you're the brilliant economist. I'm just a lowly talk show host. But I, I know how to frame. I know how to frame a conversation. I know how to frame an argument. And and I think uh, that going forward, we might consider. Uh, the argument being one of fundamental fairness. So I, I, again, your language about a handout—if we're going to give handouts, let's be like Oprah. You get a, you get some land, and you get some land, and you get some land, and you get a check, and you everybody get a check. Let's just let's just go the Oprah route. I uh, give everybody something. But that argument, I yeah. think, is rooted more in fundamental fairness than a and than a, than a, a specific dollar figure. I digress for the moment. We'll continue with William A. Darity Jr. when we come forward on KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. Professor Darity, uh, if I've learned anything in my 30-plus year career, it is that words matter, language matters. And you and I have been, um, uh, for the last few minutes, noodling uh, and just reworking how we frame this conversation about reparations, how we reframe this conversation about racial equity initiatives. And I believe, uh, with every fiber of my being, we're going to need a reframing of this conversation if we expect to succeed, even as we are making progress. All of that said... Um, I I heard your point loud and clear that at the moment, not a majority of Americans are buying that argument, no matter what the language is, whether you're talking about $14 trillion, whether you're talking about a handout, whether you're talking about reparations, whether you're talking about fundamental fairness, whether you you call it racial equity initiatives. At the moment, the majority of, of folk in this country aren't buying that, which leads me to ask the following, whether or not you think it's just a matter of time or whether or not getting a majority of Americans to agree with that hinges on something beyond or other than the mere passage of time. I have no idea, to yeah. be honest. <laughs> uh, what,
1: what, what I will say is that um, that I do have some grounds for optimism mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have had, say, four or five years ago. I mean, I, I made a commitment uh, to work on Being an advocate and a researcher on reparations at a point at which I thought that the likelihood that it would occur was, was, was very, very low. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I still made that commitment because I felt so much that it is the right thing to do and that it's the only way in which we can really address the historical injustices that have taken place in, in American society. So that said, uh, in the year 2000, when Michael Dawson and Ravana Popoff, uh, two scholars at the University of Chicago, did a survey of American attitudes towards reparations, they found that 4% of white Americans endorsed monetary payments as reparations for black Americans. Okay. That's F-O-U-R, 4%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Today, a study that has been conducted in the beginning of 2023 by uh, a group of researchers at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst finds that that proportion is closer to 30. Mm -hmm. So over the course of two decades, there's been a substantial change in uh, American white sentiment towards reparations as monetary payments to black Americans. Can we build on that change? That can can we create momentum from that? I I don't know. I I would hope so, uh, but I, I think that that change is a very dramatic one, and uh, and I think it's the factor that accounts for the so the attack on so-called critical race theory, mm-hmm. because I think that there's a segment of the American population and in this case, a numerical minority yeah. that does not want people to understand the truth and the accurate story about America's past and present.
0: Yeah. When we come forward um, in, our, in our remaining moments, uh, I, want to, I want to close by asking Professor Darity a question about what he just mentioned a moment ago. And that is when he started um, this work, when he committed himself Um, to doing the work and the research around this question of reparations, around uh, these questions about racial equity initiatives, um, the numbers were not what they are now. And I'm always fascinated by scholars or anybody else for that matter who commits themselves, they believe in something so strongly, even though there's no evidence whatsoever to suggest that what they're doing will ever reap any benefit in real time or in the future for that matter. Uh, I'm fascinated by people who commit themselves to something at that level when there's no evidence to suggest that what they're doing makes any sense at all. Uh, you could call that faith. <laughs> you can call that something else. But I'm I'm fascinated by a commitment in that moment. I want to ask him why then he committed himself to doing that. Um, let me answer my own question of a moment ago. Um, for me, it's both Kairos and Kronos. Kairos and Kronos. It's going to take the passage of time. It's also going to take, I think, a specific, a specific and special moment in time to get that number where it needs to be. So it's not either or for me, it's both and Kairos and Kronos. And uh, the other question, uh, the other issue that he raises uh, about uh, the number slowly creeping up from you know 4% back then to 30% today, I, I wonder how those numbers will change as we move closer to America becoming a majority, minority country for the first time. Um, The white number is going to decrease. Now, let me just let me just throw, throw a whole bunch of mess in the pot right quick. On the one hand, I can see that number continuing to grow. On the other hand, if it's a bunch of people of color and they have been wronged in ways that in different ways and we've been wrong, we all people of color and we've all been wronged. I'm not so sure that number continues to grow. Do you take my point? I can see it growing. I can see it not growing as we become a majority minority country. I digress for the moment. Our final moments with William Darity when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. Darity, I want to get your take right quick. I got four minutes left. I want to get to that one question I mentioned a moment ago that I want to ask you, but I want to make sure that my point was clear. I was talking to my producers and my board up in in the break there. My, my, My question is whether or not As the country becomes less white, we become majority minority. I can read that number jumping from four to 30 percent two ways into the future. It will continue to climb uh, because people believe in fundamental fairness. They agree that black folk have been wrong. and They ought to be some reparative justice. On the other hand, when people of color collectively become the majority, they have their own individual grievances in these other races. And I'm not so sure they're going to be supporting us to get our checks. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I think I think that that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting dilemma. Uh, I, I do want to say this though: I'm not so sure we're going to become a, a minority white country uh, because so many of uh, more recent arrivals to the United States, regardless of how they look visually, right? are choosing to self-identify nope. as
0: white. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Loud and clear. Yeah. Point, point well taken. Uh, let, me, sure. let, me, let me close by asking, because uh, I was fascinated by the way you committed yourself to this when there was no evidence anywhere <laughs> that it was a worthwhile pursuit. You did anyway, and I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did, uh, and your working witness speaks for itself at Duke University. Uh, but tell me why you did. Uh,
1: I think, I recognize that sometimes some things are so much the right thing that even if the odds are extremely long, you need to try to work for them. And, you know, perhaps at some point the world will turn in the direction that you have in mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, if it was 1817 and, uh, you, you probably would think there would never be an end to slavery in the United States, mm-hmm. but would that mean that you should not have opposed slavery in 1817? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's it. You know, I, it's just serendipity that I think that people are now paying a great deal of attention to this this question of of redress for yeah. for Black Americans.
0: No, it's a powerful frame you give us, a powerful frame, and I'm I'm glad I asked that question and more grateful for your answer to it. Uh, let me offer this then: um, in the years, uh, the decades since you committed yourself to this proposition, you gave us the numbers a moment ago. Uh, certainly, in the white community, four uh, percent uh, uh, two decades ago. Thirty uh, percent now in the white community believe um, that uh, uh, that there should be redress and that uh, money ought to be involved. Um, are you happy with the rate of progress given your commitment back in the day? Uh,
1: I, I think I'm, it's not a question of being happy. It's it's actually a more of a question of being a little bit surprised. Oh, okay, and because uh, because I. I didn't really anticipate that there would be this degree of support from white Americans at,
0: at this moment. But uh, uh, let's see what let's see if we can build on it. And, and what does that say to you? I've got 45 seconds. What's that say to you then about white people? You've been you've been black your whole life, as have I. What's that say to you then about, <laughs> about white people in America in late modernity?
1: I it, it gives me hope that if people have better information and know more about the accurate history of this nation that they will make judgments that are 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 consistent with trying to produce a an America where black Americans will have full citizenship.
0: Yep, I agree with that. And I, I think that all comes down to uh them understanding um, why uh, this is uh, about fundamental fairness when they know the history you can make the argument better about uh, why in in a frame of fundamental fairness we ought to do this i digress for now dr william a dirty jr is the Samuel du bois cook professor of public policy african and african-american studies and economics busy guy and director of the Samuel du bois cook center on social equity at duke university who i've been pleased and delighted to have had on for this hour professor darity all the best you thanks for your time sir Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's going to be two uh, great hours in front of us. We'll talk about happiness uh, in Hour 3 and how to achieve it and whether or not you can achieve it, whether or not it's uh, fleeting or whether or not you can do something about it uh, with uh, Dr. Hanson, the foremost expert on happiness uh, in this country. Uh, But in our second hour, coming up after News Traffic and Sports, a conversation with the Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. As a book out, uh, made of uh, up of his diary um, uh, 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 notes during the case of uh, George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, to be exact. That when we come forward on K.